You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Max Weber's The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism is one of the most important texts in the history of sociology, and people have been citing it with various degrees of approval and understanding for more than a century now. But as the United States increasingly moves into a post-Protestant, even a post-Christian age, readers of Weber may wonder if and how the American spirit is changing. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is one of America's leading Catholic intellectuals, Dr. Joseph Bottom, whose latest book is an attempt to answer just that question. Our readers may be familiar with his writings from the Weekly Standard, Commonwealth, and many other magazines, or with his numerous other books of poetry, essays, and fiction. His latest book is An Anxious Age, The Post-Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of America, and I'm delighted that it's brought him on Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, Jody. Thanks so much for having me. The title of your book, as I mentioned, pays homage to Weber's The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. I'd like to start, if you don't mind, by having you talk about Weber's influence on this project. Do you see yourself as extending his work or correcting it or as something else entirely? Uh, I think Weber was my conversation partner all through this, uh, the project of writing this book. I spent a summer rereading Weber, reading some Weber that I'd never read before, rereading the old stuff. And and trying to come to grips with him, because I think he's faded in a little way. We don't talk about the Protestant work ethic in, with quite the, uh, or quite as often as we used to. Uh, and Weber is really brilliant for all that I think he's quite wrong fairly often. Sociologists, in fact, have turned on his thesis in a number of ways in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. But his book on bureaucracy is simply groundbreaking. Uh, and there at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, there was a lot of conversation going on in theology, in philosophy, in the emerging science of sociology or humanities science, social science of sociology, uh, and, and in history about what it was that had happened in modernity. What was modern times? What was the difference? There was a lot of Catholic theology going on on exactly this topic, or Catholic theological thought. Uh, and Weber gave us some interesting ways to think about it, in particularly what he spoke of as the elective affinities uh, that created modernity. Uh, these are sociological elements that are emerging that have no necessary relation to one another, and yet somehow they all kind of clumped to, together to create modernity, to, to make the turn out of the Middle Ages, out of the Renaissance, into the modern age. And he's thinking of things like the emerging bureaucracies of the nation states, the turn to science and the scientific worldview, Protestantism, uh, to a large degree, and uh, the new economics of the rising middle class in capitalism. And he sees all of these merging together in ways that logically they need not have. You could have a capitalism uh, that wasn't associated with the bourgeois nation state, for instance. But he found this term in Goethe, uh, an old chemical term for elements that appear to attract each other, this elective affinities. And he used that to describe the birth of the modern age. And I thought in all the accounts that we've heard since, in all of our schooling and all the rest of it, Protestantism seems to have kind of dropped out as one of the elective affinities. 
People talk about science, people talk about economics, but they don't talk about the religious root of the turn into modernity. And I began to think that Weber may have been wrong about the actual historical evidence he uses to make his case about the birth of capitalism out of the spirit of Protestantism in Northern Europe at the particular moment of the turn into modern times. But he wasn't wrong in the way that he turned Marx on his head. Marx had thought that all religious phenomena come out of economic crises. So Protestantism is born out of the crisis of emergent capitalism. And Weber turns him on his head. Weber says, no, you know, in fact, capitalism is born out of religion, not the other way around. And what drives a culture, Weber thinks, is spiritual anxiety. Uh, which is ultimately the question for the Protestants, as Weber laid them out, of not just am I saved, but how do I know that I am saved? How can I be sure? How can I be confident in my salvation? Uh, and I thought we need to restore in some serious way the possibility that spiritual anxiety is a driving force in culture. And the more I looked around at our own culture in America today, the more I saw it riven with spiritual anxiety. Everyone is concerned with how they know that they're saved, even though they don't use that language. But they're desperately concerned to know that they are good people. They're desperately concerned to be perceived that way. And uh, I saw it in the kids that I went and interviewed when a magazine sent me to cover uh, Occupy Wall Street. I saw it in these young academics. I spent some time with at a Catholic philosophical conference. I see it in the environmentalists. I see it in the Tea Party. I see it everywhere. This rough and, and you know, really dominant spiritual anxiety that's sweeping across the culture. You see it in like the internet outrage machine where some something happens and everybody has to rush to declare their allegiance to whatever side they want to declare their allegiance to. Yeah, and, and exactly. And we elevate the most mundane passing things like the shirt worn by the rocket scientist. Yeah. I mean, what an insane topic to focus all this attention on. But, but if you don't, you, you're outside of the community that you want to exist in. You've been excommunicated. Very much so. And, you you know, we're all supposed to be caught up in it because it is on these sorts of questions that your very salvation relies. Or not your salvation, but your knowledge of your salvation. How do you know that you are on, to use one of those wonderful phrases, the right side of history? Yeah. Well, and especially since the – it, it changes every 45 minutes. I mean, it, it's not like, it's not like you get to make one statement. There's no one saved, always saved here. <laughs> you're, oh, you're, That's the anxiety of it. It's open-ended. You need a kind of perpetual reproving of it. This was Weber's really smart observation about uh, the uh, soteriological force, the redemptive feeling uh, of Protestantism, because of course it starts out as a way of saying uh, Catholicism has bound us up in too many rules. We can never be certain of our salvation. Uh, and the great point of Luther and Calvin is to be certain of our salvation, to be confident that we are saved. And uh, 
you know, with the, the Catholic works righteousness as they denounced it, where you're constantly having to buy indulgences and all the rest of it, you can never be sure that you're saved. Uh, and we're going to just sweep all that away. And Weber points out quite convincingly that it worked for a handful of religious geniuses like Luther and Calvin. <laughs> but it very quickly turned into back into the question of, okay, how do I know that I'm saved? There, uh, there's if, a chart from some 17th century English Puritan. I, I've, I've looked at it years ago, but it, it, it had to do with who, who was destined for hell and who was destined for heaven and you get you get on the one hand people who are destined for hell but who are given common grace to act like they're destined for heaven and mm-hmm. it's, it's just the most most convoluted most terrifying chart you've ever seen in your life right and done uh you know in the name of as you as you're rightly pointing out done in the name of saving us from all that awful works righteousness uncertainty that the catholics had well, I remember having a conversation with uh, with a friend of mine in grad school, and we were talking about Catholic guilt and Jewish guilt. And he said, is there such a thing as Protestant guilt? And I said, I think Protestant guilt is uh, feeling guilty that you're not feeling the right things or you're not feeling them strongly enough. Well, then we enter the, the kind of difference between Luther and Calvin, or at least one difference in, um, you know, concentration and focus, which is the secondary question of sanctification. How once are, once you're justified, once you know that you're a redeemed sinner, how do you get better? How is that going to issue in anything? I'm working on a book right now on, on the history of the novel, which I'm going to claim is, an, is a uh, deeply Protestant work, art form. Uh, but I've been reading the 17th century or the 18th century novel to death. And, you know, this is Richardson. This is Daniel Defoe. This is the the question of how you know that you are uh, – or first question is how do you know that you're saved? But the second question is how is that going to change my behavior? Uh, how is that going to work itself out in my sanctification? And I've come to the conclusion that Clarissa – that Samuel Richardson's Clarissa is the most Protestant book ever written. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it still works – in the United States today, I argue through uh, a reading of Tocqueville in this book, An Anxious Age, that we're discussing, that all of this came to America, and America is fundamentally a Protestant nation. Uh, we Catholics, you know, sometimes we were allowed in, sometimes we weren't, but we always knew that we were living on the banks of a great river that was Protestantism, that poured through the heartland of this country. Uh, and, you know, the kind of, you know, Tocqueville has this nice phrase. He says that the, uh, the various sects of Protestantism squabbled with one another about infant baptism, about whether or not you could have bishops, about ecclesiology, about fine points of doctrine. And yet somehow they combined to form a great current, single current of manners and morals for the new nation. Hmm. And, you know, that's what, Catholics and Jews always stood on the outside of. That was America. And my argument in the book is for all that the elite college-educated class thinks all that's gone away, uh, it hasn't, in fact. They are its heirs, and they are filled with its anxieties. So you have this kind of invisible, disappeared Protestantism that's still – 
I don't know. I've been teaching post-structuralism, so all I can think of is traces. But 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 traces of it are still controlling the emotions. Let's say of right. I I, I would object to the word traces unless you add that controlling. Yeah. Adjective. Uh, yeah, they're controlling traces. These people are still driven by the same anxieties, and they still know themselves as good, not because they are elite, as a lot of conservatives argue but because they think of themselves as elect. They, have, they know that they are good people because they reject the social evils that have hung over the past, that still hang over the benighted classes of society today. Do, do you see a, a similar tendency on the right as well as the left? I mean, I, I, you talk about it mostly, I, I think, in terms of – in, in terms of kind of moderate liberalism, but do you do you think there's a conservative corollary to it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I see it in as I you know as I mentioned these uh, uh, these young Catholic academics uh, at this conference I went to who kept giving you would love this story because you know you are one of them. They kept giving me copies of this column that uh, Alistair McIntyre had written, I think, in Commonweal in the run-up to the 2008 election, presidential election, about the Catholic duty not to vote. I, I do have to correct you. I, I am a young academic who doesn't vote, but I'm, uh, I'm Protestant and not Catholic. Oh, I, okay. Uh, I do like McIntyre, though, so maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm a closet Catholic. These young academics were convinced of their own rightness, uh, their own election. And if the price of that was lifeboat theology, then so be it. Yeah, I, I, uh, I can't, I can't argue with you. I, I mean, I see myself in that description, uh, as, as unpleasant as it might be. And I see it in the Tea Party uh, sometimes. Although I confess, I, you know, I sort of like, I like American eccentricity a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I think people actually don't have enough sympathy. For what, in Tom Wolfe's great phrase, this Baroque hog-stomping nation is actually like. Uh, it's just filled with madness, and I love it. But uh, in, in lots of those madnesses, I think you can see uh, these anxieties at play. Now, of course, in another sense, what I'm arguing in the book, is, in the second half of the book, is uh, a history of American Catholicism over the last 30 or 40 years in which I, I say throughout the book that you can't understand America at any point in its history without asking the question, what is the state of Protestant religion at the moment at which I'm looking? Uh, and in our own time, the state of Protestant religion uh, is dominated by the fact of the massive collapse of the mainline churches. Yeah, uh, That's our condition. And everybody knows this. I mean, this is not a secret. I, I give a chapter of statistics, but... Uh, in a way, I felt like I could have skipped that whole chapter. That was a kind of necessary, you know, clearing of the throat just to make sure everybody knew. Well, 50, 50 years from now, people might not be, be, yeah, be but, so aware of it. But, you know, from over 50% of the nation in the mainline and affiliated denominations in 1965 to under 10% today. It's kind of insane. I, I read uh, Ross, and I do not know how to pronounce his last name now that I've started saying it, but Ross Duthat. Does that. Does that. I, I read his uh, his latest book a few years ago, and his description of the 50s in terms of the religious environment made it just sound so 
foreign, this this world right. in which the, the main line has well, I mean, they're putting Carl Barth on the cover of Time magazine. Right. Yeah. It's it's hard to imagine a theologian of any stripe, but much less a mainline Protestant theologian being on the cover of Time. So as they collapsed, as the mainline denominations collapsed, I locus it all around the founding of or the Eisenhower's flying up to New York to lay the cornerstone of the National Council of Churches building, the God box up on Riverside Drive, uh, as you know, because it was such an all American institution. Uh, as that collapsed, the two largest groups of Christians who had always been on the outside, uh, from kept out by that mainstream of liberal American Protestantism, were kind of sucked into the vacuum. And they met there uh, and began to try to form a new political vocabulary, vocabulary of, you know, public morality, when the old mainline Protestant one had collapsed. And those two groups that had always been on the outside and were suddenly meeting in the middle again, uh, or for the first time, are the Catholics on one side and the evangelicals on the other. Yeah, so so McIntyre and George W. Bush are speaking the same language in some sense. Right. And they have to be, or they that happens because the the center collapsed and these two outside groups got sucked into meat. Now some people loved it, right? And some people hated it. But the fact is, you suddenly started hearing about Catholics and evangelicals a whole lot more than you had before in the mainstream of the media. I mean, the New York Times was running editorials in 2010 about Catholic interference in elections. And and I had to laugh because it was nothing compared to what you got in 1960. Right. You know, I mean, when, when you, you know, Catholics were being told from the pulpit that they had an absolute duty to go out and vote for John F. Kennedy. Uh, and nothing like that happened this time, but it seems so much more visible. Uh, and in the elections in 2010, we saw one of the fruits of that. I joked in an essay in the little column in the Weekly Standard that you're uh, – average new Republican member of Congress after the 2010 elections was a, a mildly successful businessman from Texas who went to an evangelical mega and when he opened his mouth, spoke in the language of Catholic social teaching. <laughs> and, you know, because he'd say things, they'd say things like just war theory and they'd say things like uh, dignity of the person. Right. Uh, all this language that comes out of this Catholic Tradition. Now, some of that, maybe a lot of it, came from uh, deliberate meetings designed to bring it about through groups like evangelicals and Catholics together. Uh, and I was at all those meetings. You know, I was the, the junior guy who was told to sit, you know, sit next to Richard John Newhouse and not talk. But I was at all those meetings. And it was Avery Dulles, and it was Richard Land, who was the kind of chief theoretician of the Southern Baptist Convention. It was Chuck Colson and Avery Dulles. And we were all aiming, whether at some fairly high theological level or some really immediately practical political level, toward bringing about this kind of ecumenism of the trenches between Catholics and evangelicals, made possible, made necessary by the collapse of the mainline Protestant denominations. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy because I'm, I'm 32 and I grew up in Georgia and I can remember serious anti-Catholic sentiment in the Baptist church I grew up in. And now, you know, I, 
well, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of a mainline church, so I, I guess that's a, a whole different thing. But I teach at an evangelical college, and you very rarely hear anti-Catholic thought. They, they might hold Catholicism at a distance because of the Pope and because of purgatory or whatever. But, but there's, I, I have not, I've been here four years, and I have not encountered a single student who did not think Catholics were co-Christians with evangelicals. In fact, it's the mainline they're suspicious of. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I describe this in the book as an interesting kind of horizontal uh, unity, a kind of mere belief to adapt or to modify C.S. Lewis's claim or description of mere Christianity. It's a kind of mere belief in which a serious and devout believing Presbyterian will feel like he has more in common with the serious, devout, and, and theologically conservative members of the Catholic Church or even the Greek Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm than he does with the non-serious, non-doctrinal members of his own denomination. I think that's absolutely true because I am that Presbyterian, and I mean it, it's it, it's absolutely true. It's it's what it's 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 a depth of religion rather than a particular perspective on it, and it cuts horizontally across all the denominations. Of course, it worked on the other side too, in the great modernist struggles, uh, you know, in which. Um, Oh, Fosdick is put on uh, trial by his presbytery for heresy uh, after preaching, shall the evangelicals win? Uh, or shall the fundamentalists win? And, uh, you know, he resigns. Do you know this story? Uh, I, you, you should refresh my memory. I, I've heard it, but I don't remember. So he, this is uh, in the uh, first decade of the 20th century. He's a... Uh, utterly mainline preacher, uh, you know, a society preacher of some real skill, good, good, good preacher uh, in New York. And he preaches against the new fundamentalism that's emerging. Right? Uh, this is the fundamentalism that's going to divide the seminary and at Princeton and produce a lot of the modernist fundamentalist divide. Right? And he preaches against it. And he's put on trial for heresy by his own presbytery. And uh, do you know who he hires to be his lawyer? Avery Dulles's father. Well, that's a that's an John odd Foster. confluence, isn't it? <laughs> John Foster Dulles, because of course that was that old blue blood Protestant American family. Uh, and uh, and it looks like the trial is going against him, so he resigns. And uh, John D. Rockefeller builds for him a new multi-denominational church. This is Riverside Church in New York City. It is built for Fosdick when he resigns in protest against being accused of heresy. Uh, and that was a moment at which the church would be, that Rockefeller would build for Fosdick, is going to be multi-denominational precisely because this same kind of horizontal unity that I've been describing touched all of the the liberals in the different Protestant denominations then. They all felt if you were a congregationalist of this liberal social gospel type, you felt like you had more in common with a Presbyterian of that type than you did with a fellow congregationalist who wasn't of that type. Right, yeah. Like the World Council of Churches. Yeah, exactly. And the National Council of Churches comes out of this in many ways. Now, I trace in the book, in the first half of the book, uh, the Protestant half, I trace much of this to, or at least through, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, 
whom I claim is the most consequential thinker since the Civil War. Yeah, tell us what, what Rauschenbusch has, has to do with, with uh, the, the poster children, as you call them, the post-Protestants. Uh, Rauschenbusch is, is uh, I'm in love with him. You know, I wish, <laughs> I wish you Protestants took him more seriously. I mean, you ought to be booming this guy. He is, he is a really amazing prose stylist. It's a prissy, obnoxious prose that I actually dislike, but he, he's really good at it. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I just can't get enough of it. Uh, but he says, in essence, he becomes, although he's not the first thinker of what we would describe as the social gospel movement, he becomes its most visible figure. And he essentially argues that Christ was not crucified for our sins individually. He says it's meaningless to say that Christ suffered for the uh, uh, theft that a Briton in AD 50, a British miner in AD 56 committed, or uh, the crimes that a drunken uh, man in, in Tennessee committed when he got, when a man in Tennessee in AD, or AD 1910 got drunk and beat his wife. It's meaningless to say that Christ took those sins upon himself. The sins he did take upon himself and that he bore upon his body are the sins of the society, the social sins. They are bigotry, militarism, the, the judgment of the mob. And he names these uh, social entities that crucified Christ and against which he rose. And in rising revealed to us as the sin themselves, the sins we instance when we, uh, you know, when we commit our, our petty little sins. And Christ shows us these sins in a sudden revelation, and we realize what it is that actually sin is. It's this set of social forces that compel us to evil. And you know that you are saved when you reject those. Rauschenbusch said that what he was looking to create was in one of his great phrases. I told you I'm in love with his prose. He said he was looking to create the ganglion chain of redeemed personalities in a modern society. Yeah, that's a pretty good line. When Rauschenbusch uses that wonderful phrase, the ganglion chain of redeemed personalities, what he means is that he's looking to, to establish a set of people in a culture who get it. It's a kind of mysticism of redemption, a certainty that you're saved because you have perceived the social evils of the world and rejected them in your own mind. You've turned toward the light. Uh, he doesn't think that this is the second coming on its own terms. He understands that we can't summon the second coming. In a great signature phrase, he says, the kingdom of God is always but coming. Uh, at the same time, he thinks that these people, these elect, leaven a culture and pull it out of these, this miasma of social sin. Uh, the, these sins have for Rauschbusch a kind of metaphysical weight. They exist in the world and hang over us. They cloud the past. They cloud the present in other classes apart from this ganglion chain of redeemed personalities. And they, uh, we need to 
know ourselves as redeemed by understanding that we reject them. That's how you're certain of your salvation. Uh, and it's a fascinating move. Now, Rauschenbusch and his entire generation were brilliantly trained, uh, biblically and theologically. Rauschenbusch's father uh, had a, the chair of Christian, uh, the history of Christian theology at the University of Rochester, which started as a seminary and grew into a university. Uh, and Rauschenbusch will end up with that same chair that his father had had. And they, you know, so for his generation, and indeed for some generations after, uh, they were fully Christian. They understood Christ. They read the Bible. They knew their church history, and they believed the doctrines of their creed. But as the Rauschenbuschian move becomes more familiar, whole generations are brought up in it, it's exactly that training that starts to go away. Mm -hmm. Whereupon the question that Machen had asked in the 1920s and Niebuhr would repeat in the 1950s starts to become pressing. And that question asked of the social gospel movement is, well, what does Christ do now? If what Christ did was reveal these social sins with his death and resurrection, what ongoing role does he have? And the social gospel movement as a theology has no answer. Other than he's an, he's an example, right? Right. The, the uh, metaphor I give in the book or the analogy is he's like the ladder that we use to climb up to the higher ledge. But once we're on the higher ledge, we don't need the ladder anymore. Do you, do you think that move was inevitable? I mean, R Rauschenbusch kind of he's, – he's obviously not the first person to do this, but but introduces – social theory into his theology but as you say he he holds both of them he has both and he has both hands full uh do, do you think it was inevitable that they would let go of the theology eventually and just have the social gospel well i kind of do this is now tricky okay <laughs> i i kind of do because i'm really actually in the john henry newman camp that thinks protestantism has to end up here uh, -huh. uh but you know that's that's just my catholic training speaking uh, Machen and certainly the fundamentalists of the 1920s did not think so. Uh, they had, they had a serious critique that said this is, this is liberalism in this way is a surrendering to the spirit of the age. But th their, th their solution was to hold on to the theology and drop the social side, right? Yeah, but I think you can get more sophisticated as Karl Barth certainly was. Yeah. And still, uh, you know, and still claim that it didn't have to end up this way. Now, you mentioned Ross Douthat. Ross and I had a debate at Georgetown uh, this spring uh, where we took up almost exactly this question. And Ross's view expressed in that Bad Religion book that, that you mentioned is that, in fact, it did have to end up this way. And that what we are now living through is what Protestantism looks like when it wins. Hmm. That this is victory. You know, modern liberalism is the victory of Protestantism. Uh, and the fact that it won is exactly what makes it seem unnecessary. You know, in the same way that you don't need battle tanks after you've carried the day. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm much more interested, I think, than Ross is in in the serious theology of Machen, say. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, regardless, I think, you know, the track that we have to be on is understanding uh, huge swaths of our current culture as still as derived from and still part of the anxieties of their mainline Protestant grandparents. I'm, 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 I can't tell if I'm bummed out or excited right now, <laughs> which, which is, a, you know, maybe my, maybe my normal state. Um, do, you, do you think there's any kind of future for moderate, moderately liberal Protestants? Because, I mean, like I said, my, my church has, has just left the PCUSA over the recent gay marriage uh, rulings they made over the summer. And, and, but they, they formed a, uh, a new denomination. They've joined a new denomination that's essentially what the PCUSA was in the 70s. I think that's, that's how they see themselves. Do you, do you think there's any future at all for moderately liberal Protestants, or are we all just going to become poster children or fundamentalists or Catholics eventually? Or, you or know, I don't. Well, of course, you all will become Catholics again. <laughs> But, in heaven, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Church triumphant is triumphant, after all. But uh, there is, I don't know. I mean, there, there's some interesting anecdotes that make me think that uh, these beautiful forms of Christian experience, I say that, you know, even looked at from from my point of view, which is very much a kind of Rabelaisian, Renaissance festival kind of Catholicism. Uh, I mean, I think the Russian literary theorist uh, Bakhtin was a genius for seeing the the centrality of the idea of festival, Mm -hmm. which is rich and messy and everything else. But even from that point of view, I look at congregationalism, you know, the the old congregationalist churches uh, in this country as they developed out of their English and Scottish parents and – their elevation of the virtue of honesty. These were beautiful ways of living the Christian experience and performing the Christian liturgy. And they're going away. The UCC, the United Church of Christ, which is what the congregations became in the late 1950s when they joined with a couple liberal German reformed churches to become the UCC. The UCC, the average age of a congregationalist in the UCC is 65. That's crazy. The disciples of Christ, who were large enough to be one of the seven founding members of the National Council of Churches, today there are under 600,000 of them left in the United States. They're over. They're done. The the disciples of Christ are over. Hmm. And they won't come back. Uh, And I tell some of these stories, and I want to weep for this loss of, you know, these beautiful, interesting forms of the Christian experience and forms of Christian community. And they're just being wiped out before our eyes. What do you think made the mainline collapse? I mean, you, you, you mentioned Ross Douthat's uh, idea that this is just the triumph of Protestantism. This is just what Protestantism looks like. What, what, what do you think made the mainline collapse the way it did? I think it's the social gospel movement, not in its social concerns, but in its theological concerns. Uh, This is where I think too many of our friends don't actually take theology seriously. And I think theology has consequences. Um, This is why I look at Max Weber again, because I think he's one of the few sociologists who got that. 
and I think the, the social gospel movement had the effect of collapsing these churches, not because it turned to social issues, but precisely in that point we were just making, which is that it leaves nothing for Christ to do. And if going to church doesn't matter, if Christ doesn't matter, as long as you are among the redeemed, then people woke up one day and said, why am I going to church? And they stopped. The church is unnecessary for their salvation. Uh, and the teachings of the church are unnecessary for their salvation. All that matters for them to know that they are saved is that they have the right social attitudes. And, you know, the church is, this is as the effect of successfully teaching that, you know, all that matters is the right social attitudes. You know, so you get, uh, uh, what's her name? The, the presiding bishop of the Episcopalian Church in America. Uh, I do not know. Shori. Uh, Shori. Uh, she, uh, you know, she, she identifies Christianity, her Christianity, with the United Nations statement on millennial goals. Which is pretty insane. Right. I mean, that's what it is to be a Christian, which means that the bureaucrats in the elite bureaucrats in the United Nations are, in her view, more fully Christian than her own members of her own denomination. Than the founders of her denomination. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, at, at a certain point, you're, you're not doing bad theology. You're just not making a theological decision at all. Well, except that that this is what I meant when I said theology has consequences. That is a theology. Right. Uh, and, you know, uh, Rod Dreher tells this story of being down in Texas uh, and uh, and uh, Jeffrey Choice comes and she preaches to these people who are very worried about their Episcopal churches. Uh, for one thing, remember, the Episcopal church in America has the largest set of beautiful real estate in any private hands. Sure. I mean, it's just gorgeous. The, the deposit of architecture in the hands of the Episcopal church in this country, you know, the Baptists got the, the shack down by the river. The Episcopalians got the stone church up on the hill. And, uh, you know, she comes and she preaches to these uh, blue haired ladies of the Episcopal church in Dallas and uh, it's all berating them for not supporting leftist goals. And uh, Rod's sitting there. He was working for the Dallas newspaper at the time. And he sees this one obviously wealthy, blue-haired elderly lady turn to another and say, well, that's it then. We'll have to go with the Africans. <laughs> Meaning, because this was at the time, it was one of the ways you could break away from the Episcopal Church uh, and retain your property, which technically belongs to the bishop, right? You could do it by voting to get a new bishop, reorganizing yourself as a missionary parish, and then getting a bishop under the, by the complicated bylaws of the Episcopal Church and getting a, one of the African bishops to be your missionary bishop. Uh, and it was a very complicated kind of legal ploy to keep your beautiful architecture out of the hands of the bishop and still you know, still do the Episcopalian thing. And Rod says, you know, this is, you know, I don't know, 2000. He says, less than 50 years 
from Jim Crow laws in Texas to, well, I guess we have to go with the Africans. It's just astonishing. Uh, but the Episcopal Church is in trouble. The, all these mainline denominations are in trouble. Presbyterians are the largest. Yeah, but, but we're in trouble too. My last church, my wife was the youngest adult. She was 26, and I was the second youngest. I was I must have been 30. And then the next youngest after me was at least 10 years. I, I, I remember we had a friend who turned 80, and it wasn't a big deal but because, because everybody in the church was 80 or older, you, you know? Uh, I I didn't put this in the book because I wasn't confident that I had the right statistics. But by my rough count, 90% of Methodist churches in America have for over 10 years uh, performed more funerals than they performed baptisms or marriages. Yikes. You know, and that's a sign. Are, are you baptizing your kids or are you marrying your young people? Uh, if you're not, you're dying. Well, maybe that's a maybe that's an argument for churches doing gay weddings because it'll at least get the number. Right. Well, and in fact, you, you said, is there a future for liberal Protestantism? Uh, its future, I, I think, one of the reasons it latched so strongly onto uh, gay marriage was that uh, it was a way to feel relevant again, mm-hmm. a way to think that they could survive. I wonder if it's going to get their enrollment up, though. I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but then, then prestige enters and the rest of it. Uh, regardless, I think this is um, something to be sad about, the collapse of these denominations. But the other side, which is this feeling of, of Christian certainty and salvation, that goes on. And it goes on in many different classes, although, as you say in the book, I look mostly because it's clear the post-Protestant grandchildren of the people who used to belong to these mainline churches. They still think of themselves as the center of American culture in the way that their grandparents did. It's just now they don't go to church. They don't belong to any church. They think Christianity is part of the problem. uh, And uh, they never have to hear even an occasional sermon on hypocrisy. Well, yeah, I mean, when's, when's the last time you heard a, uh, a sermon on sin in a mainline church? <laughs> yeah, well, one of the lines that my wife uses that I love is uh, she says, nowadays, my dentist speaks to me in moral terms stronger than any preacher I know would dare to use. Well, that's probably true. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, because, you know, e- eating sugar, smoking, being, mm-hmm. these, are, these, are the, these are the sins. Uh, I talk about uh, briefly in the book, and I point out the the interesting transition that we've undergone. Uh, I don't develop this as a point. I'd love to develop it later. Uh, Although Mary Eberstadt, the writer Mary Eberstadt, has done some work on this. But uh, one of the fascinating things in our own time, if you listen to the high moral outrage, is that people seem to have come to believe that sex is outside of all moral judgment. Yeah. And, you know, in a way that in Protestantism, only war used to be, uh, you know, that once you enter into war, without the just war theory, once you enter into war, which is an immoral state, right? But once you enter into it, anything goes. Uh, this is sex, apart from rape, 
you know, sex is sort of anything. It's all outside of moral judgment. As long as, as long as there's consent. Right. Which is one of the reasons I say the, the concept of rape is expanding because we have no other moral vocabulary in which to discuss bad sex. Uh, But also one of the things you're seeing, if you listen to the high moral language is that there's a shift in which we're for a long time, a couple hundred years, the center of moral worry about the body was in sex. And it shifted in, in your own lifetime to be about food. Yeah. You know, that's where people who are worried about the, the body, the moral entity that is the body, that's where their worries are all locust. Gluten free ends up being in a form of asceticism. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, there's some hilarious things kicking around about the college student who leaves her roommate or her housemate uh, a letter filled with outrage because the, the housemate buys meat. And the moral language is these are the these are the people who in previous generations would have written uh, little pamphlets for the religious tract society. These are the people who would have gone out to the mission fields. These are the people who are filled with fervor, uh, and now they have no f- locus for it. Well, so- it, it makes me think of friends I had in graduate school who complained about parents brainwashing their children into religion but then would, frankly, brainwash their children into being ethical vegans. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, it's a wonderful, but it's done, it's a wonderful process. And it's done with exactly the same absolute assurance of cultural centrality and moral rightness that their great-grandparents had in the Presbyterian church. And, and humorlessness, don't forget that. I mean, they're utterly humorless about it, which is where your Robelasian Catholicism might be. Might be just the thing to deflate. <laughs> I, I, I brought that up only to say, you know, that that I really mean it when I say I regret the loss of these churches, you know, because they're not my church. Uh, I, you know, I had dinner last month with a, a Methodist minister who was utterly blasé about the death of his own church as though it were actually a gain in rightness that his congregation die off. And and there's some truth to that, right? I mean, Christianity being an underground phenomenon might not be such a bad thing, but it would oh, be nice. Reading it from the conservative side, this was a liberal. Yeah, right. It, it would was... be nice if we, if we had to go underground, not because we became unfashionable, but because we <laughs> actually took a stand against something. Right, exactly. Uh, this is why I, I have lots of Catholic friends. Uh, you know, we're talking kind of about mainstream, all American, suburban Catholics. Uh, I, you know, I'm on record. One of the more discussed theses I've ever put into print was an essay I wrote some years ago called The Myth of the Catholic Voter that said there is no such thing as a Catholic vote and you're deluding yourself if you think that you're going to go out and get it. Catholics, I I quoted the Wall Street Journal, Catholics have voted for the winner in the last six presidential elections. And I pointed out that Americans have voted for the winner in the last (laughs) six presidential elections. That's not the definition of a swing group. That's the definition of being invisible in the American political landscape. Right. And these people, you know, these friends of mine are unhappy 
with the extent to which the church's moral stand has become identified with opposition to abortion. But they think that that's kind of taken away from the whole social unity thing that Catholicism is supposed to be providing. Uh, But I don't actually have much sympathy for that, partly because I've been in the pro-life fight for 25 years. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's sort of too late for me to change now. Uh, but the second reason is I actually want to see the church take a stand. I think abortion was the right place to make it, to make that stand, because it is so murderous and so awful. But, you know, better even than taking a stand on abortion is the sheer fact of taking a stand, mm-hmm. of saying there is something in this culture that is wrong. Well, you know, to be fair to the United Methodists, they at least came out in 2003 against the Iraq War. They were they were on on the front lines there, weren't they? Uh, yeah, you want a measure of that evangelicals and Catholics together thing that we talked about uh, in 1973, maybe early 74, at their annual meeting at their convention, the Southern Baptist Convention voted uh, a thanks. Supreme Court for legalizing abortion in Roe v. Wade. It's crazy. Uh, 20 years later, 21, 22 years later, 1995, uh, they pass another resolution uh, uh, expressing sorrow and guilt and attempting to atone for their vote in 1973. That's more historical consciousness than I associate with the Southern Baptists, <laughs> which I think I'm allowed to say because I grew up. <laughs> As a Presbyterian, yeah. Well, um, I, grew, I grew up Southern Baptist, so, uh, okay. so I, feel, I feel like I'm allowed to make fun of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is all kind of fascinating stuff, and I think it works itself out. We are still living with the consequence of the founding of this nation uh, its early years from the Great Awakening before the Revolution through – uh, the second grade after the revolution, we are still dealing with the, the definition of this nation in its early days as a Protestant nation. I wonder, I wonder how much sense it makes. I mean, maybe, maybe it does because as you point out, the mainline denominations all get together to form this national council of churches and world council of churches. But there, there's so much diversity amongst Protestants that like, uh, like Daryl Hart talks about how it's not really worthwhile to talk about being a Christian. What you should, what you should do is claim your, the, the most narrow denomination you have, and that will give somebody an idea of what you actually are. And I think he does that because he doesn't want to be known as a Presbyterian because he doesn't want to be associated with the PCUSA. He wants everybody to know he's Orthodox Presbyterian, the, the, Machen, the Machen group. I, I, wonder, I wonder if, if – Maybe we should stop thinking in terms of Protestantism and start thinking in terms of individual denominations again. Well, that might help. I mean, I one of the things I claim in the book is that uh, the more the churches were concerned with their own doctrine, the greater impact they had on the nation. Nobody cares what the UCC says now. I mean, the UCC puts out a statement on uh, – uh, Income disparity. And who reads it? Who cares? No one pays any attention. Uh, Back when the churches were actually really uh, agonizing over the question of whether or not the biblical office of bishop had died or not, 
uh, in those days, you had a much more impact on the nation. Uh, so that that leans toward your side. I will say this, though. I remember a college president uh, saying uh, that he found it much easier to say that his college was a Methodist school than he would to say that his college was a Christian school. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which seems to work in the opposite direction, because when he, he his explanation was when he said Methodist, you know, USC, the University of Southern California, is a Methodist school, was a Methodist school. The Methodists founded it. Or, or uh, Oberlin. Yeah, when you say you're a Methodist school, you seem to be speaking of sort of historical foundation. You're speaking. You're speaking about something that's no longer relevant. Whereas that word Christian still yeah, maintains exactly. cultural power. So I, I think that militates against uh, the pattern you're describing of, you know, Dar uh, uh, Hart going, you know, let's pick something smaller. Let's pick the smallest denomination. Although, you know, it works the other way in, uh, among Catholic schools, don't you think? I mean, say, saying, saying you're a Catholic school still means something. Well, or maybe yeah, not. Although, you know, you can see the same process going on in which Georgetown will say it's a Jesuit school. Yeah. Much more easily than it'll say it's a Catholic school. Yeah. No, that's true. And I, I remember, I, I, I just learned three or four years ago that Georgetown was a Jesuit school and it kind of blew my mind because who knew? Yeah, no, uh, my wife and I both met there, you know, and we, we were married in the chapel on campus and, you know, it's our, our alma mater in a really serious way and way you never quite get over, you know, where you went to school. Sure. Uh, but, uh, she used to joke that the first time that she heard that Georgetown was a Jesuit and Catholic school was in the material sent to her parents to get them to pay for it. The second time she heard Georgetown was a Jesuit and Catholic school was in the material sent to her as an alumna to asking her to donate money. And somehow in the four years between, she'd never heard that. <laughs> uh, you know, and so and we can make fun of these Catholic schools. You know, do you know Jim Burchill's book, The Dying of the Light? I don't. In the 90s, late 90s. Uh, very interesting set of case studies. Big fat book. Erdman's published it called The Dying of the Light. Uh, and it's a set of case studies, innumerable case studies, asking the question, when did College X shed its Christian identity? Uh, and just tracing the history of each one. And you begin to see this pattern in it. And Jim, who was in a dark place by the end of his life, uh, came to the conclusion that really the Catholic schools were just 50 years behind, but walking the same path. So that would be right around now, right? Yeah, exactly. Because the, the great, the great Protestant schools I know dropped their identity in the sixties. Except uh, for the evangelical schools. I mean, they're still, right, however many of, in the CCC. Some of them were earlier. It started happening in the twenties. Uh, and one of one of the things he points out is it almost always happens with the clergyman as president. Uh, in other words, your first lay president uh, can't do it. It's like Nixon goes to China, right? Your first lay president can't be the guy who laicizes the school. You need to bring in a clergyman president to laicize the school. Or secularize, I guess, the school. That's very interesting. I, I was I was just thinking. I, I visited St. John's University 
last month I went up, I went on a retreat to the, to the monastery there and I walked around the campus and it was, it was a weird teaching at an evangelical school and having the, the last school I went to was university of Georgia, which of course is completely public, completely secular. It, it was, it was weird to see St. John's really halfway between. Yeah. Um, I, I, I felt profoundly out of place from both directions. <laughs> well, you know, one place where I still feel the old, uh, mainline Protestant hegemony is walking around the campus of Duke. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Cause they still have a, a pretty powerful seminary. Yeah. Divinity school. I think they call it. That, you know, that, that chapel. Have you seen the chapel at Duke? I haven't. No, I, I have to because say I applied, I applied to Duke and they, they rejected me within a week of getting my, <laughs> getting my application. There are these figures around. I gave a talk down there a couple of years ago. It was my first chance to really spend a little extra time on campus so there are these carved figures lining the, the portico, among whom are uh, Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis. Oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. But, but I grew know, up in Gwinnett County, Georgia, home of uh, Stone Mountain. With all other heroes of the faith, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jefferson Davis. You, it's you, really... you, you must not be from the South. Stonewall Jackson really is presented as a, as a Christian hero in, in the Protestant South. Well, Robert E. Lee, I knew about. I didn't know that it extended beyond him. Jefferson Davis, I've never heard, but Stonewall Jackson, you know, a good Presbyterian man. Right, who dies with, you know, wonderful, uh, you know, let us camp, let us cross the river and camp in the shade of the trees. I mean, he dies with these biblical images on his lips. Didn't he get shot while he was taking a leak? He got shot by his own soldiers? No, he was on horseback, but he was shot by his own men. At, uh, it was at, at Antietam, right? He'd ridden out to look at the, the deployment of the Union troops and was riding back at dusk, and his own men thought he and his, his aides were a platoon of Union cavalry coming down the road, and they shot at him. Oh, I don't know why I thought he was going to the bathroom. Maybe that would have been a better story. Uh, a better way to demythologize Stonewall Jackson. And maybe it was, you know, but it, it has the shape of a modern myth, you yeah. know, the modern demythologizing myth. Uh, but maybe you're right. I don't know. Anyway, it's, uh, you know, I when I give lectures based on this Anxious Age book, uh, I find more and more that I have to explain to the young people in the room what the old Protestant establishment of America looked like. Right. Because they simply have no experience of it. And I, and I sort of, I end up having to use, you know, a backward analogy. I have to say, you know how the lefty elites are nowadays? That's the way the mainline Protestants used to be. <laughs> they're convinced that they're at the center of culture, that they're right, that they're, they're, their social judgments are moral. Uh, I just had a lot more sympathy for it when it was, you know, actual Christian. So you, you well, find it you find it more aggravating now then? Oh yeah, much so. You know, but but you know, my grandmother wouldn't have. I I just wonder if it's if it's kind of nice they've divorced Christianity from it. Maybe it maybe it frees up Christianity to purify itself. Well, you would be the measure of that. Do you see that going on in your own church? I, I don't. It, it, it's it's hard to you know Minnesotans. They're they're not they're not the most open people. Mm-hmm. It, it's 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 hard to tell. We, we are certainly more conservative than any PCUSA denomination I've ever been involved with. We, we seem to be moving toward just kind of general evangelicalism. 
which I'm not sure is the right move either. I mean, I chose mainline Protestantism. I didn't. <laughs> I grew up Southern Baptist, which is evangelical, I suppose. And I, I chose you know, the, the mainline because it's... The Southern it's, Baptist Convention is, I mean, if you actually go back and read them, you know, read their pronouncement that come out of convention, uh, you can see this far more clearly than in the Texas Convention, far more clearly really than anywhere else. You can see the Southern Baptist Convention unable to decide whether it wants to be the last mainline church standing or the flagship of the evangelicals. That makes sense. And they go back and forth and back and forth. It's really interesting to watch. Uh, I, I should say, as an aside, this is another thing I find myself doing, is teaching these evangelical kids when they come to my lectures the history of all of this. Because they don't. it's like they don't actually know their own histories. No, and I, I, I certainly, I certainly don't know the history of the Southern Baptist Conference very, or convention very well. Uh, but you know the Presbyterian churches, and I, right. I actually think the loss, one of the losses, came to mind recently. I read some piece, I think, in the New York Times, Sunday Magazine, or somewhere, uh, where a woman was talking about going down into the flea markets on a Saturday morning. And bargaining for, you know, haggling over prices and carrying this into the, the open food markets, the farmers markets and elsewhere, right? And how she realized the only thing that had held her back before was cowardice. And now she saw that she had to be brave and how much fun it was to be brave and uh, do this kind of haggling over prices, and I, I remember being quite surprised and then realizing that I shouldn't have been at the loss of what was once thought one of the virtues in many of the mainline Protestant denominations. It comes to us partly from the Quakers, partly from the, from the Congregationalists, but it's a view of fair price and it being you know, offered for items on sale. And a view that haggling and negotiating over prices, uh, bargaining, is a species of dishonesty. It means that you you didn't put an honest price on the thing to begin with. And the Quakers have this very strongly. The Congregationalists have this too. If you look at you know the the stores in Philadelphia and the stores in upstate New York, it was very American not to bargain. You know, horse trading was always on the outside of that American uh, non-bargaining thing. But there was this kind of view of our culture that, you know, the price is what the price is. And if you bargain, you're saying that the seller is dishonest. And you're participating in dishonesty. And this kind of elevation of the virtue of honesty, even in the secular world, you know, is in its way – a very definition of Protestantism, right? I mean, and, this and we're is, losing, and we're losing that virtue, uh, right? Exactly. And here's this woman who, you know, doesn't even know the history behind this. She thinks it must just be personal cowardice that she's failed, that she never bargained before. And I thought, you know, those Quaker shopkeepers. They were pretty extraordinary people and deeply influenced by the Protestant view of the world. And it was it was a it was a more holistic view of the world too that they were coming out of. I mean, we 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 kind of I wonder how much we can 
chalk some of this up to the idea that identity itself is a consumer product. You know, you can kind of pick and choose from here and there what you are instead of I, I assume people a hundred years ago came more out of out of a single solitary tradition instead of a confluence of them. But maybe I'm just romanticizing. Well, the the, the Protestant denominations were pretty fluid. You know, pietism cut across a lot of them. So, uh, you know, uh, Rauschenbusch, after he finishes seminary, desperately trying to escape his father's legacy, which he won't. He'll end up back in his old father's old academic chair at Rochester. But as a young man, he's trying to escape it. Right. So he takes a chair or he takes a, a, a call to a church in Hell's Kitchen which is the Evangelical Lutheran Baptist Church. <laughs> you know, and this is the kind of fluidity of, these are not hard-edged denominations by any means. And actually, this is where I, I'm kind of with Rauschenbusch. Rauschenbusch would always say ever after that what radicalized him politically and socially was uh, uh, performing... Uh, children's funeral or funerals of children who'd worked to death in Hell's Kitchen. Well, that would do it, wouldn't it? Yeah. And that's where, you know, that's when he became uh, uh, so radical. Uh, I mean, if anything, in the last part of, of that book on the social gospel, that first book that really makes him the most famous academic in America, uh, the very last chapter is on socialism and if anything, he accuses socialism of not going far enough. It's still just economics, and we want the complete reformation of the heart. Hmm. Which in its way is nicely parallel to uh, Oscar Wilde's you know, great religious essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, which again is an accusation that socialism just doesn't go far enough. In Wilde's case, he's saying it doesn't go far enough in making us artists, right? Because we need the uh, aestheticizing of the soul. But it, they're both here, two guys coming from entirely different points of view, looking at socialism, saying, nah, just not enough, not radical enough. Well, I, I found that my evangelical students don't tend to realize how much a thing Christian socialism was in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, Catholicism remembers it a little better because of distributism, right? And because you know Dorothy Day lived so long, right? Right. Uh, and you know, so the Catholics tend to remember it a little better. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think the whatever Jim Wallace thinks he's doing, uh, Christian socialism is not alive anymore. Hmm. Why? Do, why do you think that is? I mean, do you, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think yeah. it's, do you think it's an impossibility or do you think it just, it just hasn't happened? Um, I think the collapse of the mainline churches hardened politics hmm. in ways that I, that I'm very unhappy with. Uh, and it, you know, we saw a transfer of uh, anti-Catholicism, for instance, uh, in interesting ways. You know, Paul Blanchard is the key figure for this, a kind of avant la lettre, John the Baptist kind of guy 
who is both a raving socialist and the author of these 1940 anti-Catholic articles in the New Republic oh, about how, how un-American Catholicism is. This is in an era in which Catholicism is very much identified with the labor unions uh, and is you know, considered to have a whole leftist thing going on, economic leftism. Uh, but in your lifetime, if you're remembering anti-Catholicism in the South, then in your lifetime, anti-Catholicism has shifted from being something you would find on the edges of the conservative religious right to being something you would find on the edges of the left. Right. Uh, and that Paul Blanchard, as I said, is a kind of, you know, preliminary proto figure for that. But, uh, I think in exactly that way, we get an impossibility of uh, Christianity living on the left. The no, left just won't have it. Not, not because the two ideas are incompatible, but because the material conditions or the philosophical conditions. At the present moment, you know, just simply disallow it. And that's what I meant by the hardening of our political options. I describe this in the book. I say, I, I say you can't understand what we mean by a spiritual age uh, unless you ask unless you notice for instance the number of people who say their ordinary political opponents are not merely mistaken but actually evil yeah on both sides on both sides yep and that's that hardening of politics that's the entry of these you know, demons that used to be contained, corralled, and put to good use in the, the churches, being set loose to find new homes in uh, social and political discourse. Hmm. Where there's no safety valve or... Mm -hmm. And to the destruction of government. I mean, politics then becomes not about right governance, but about whether or not your soul is safe. And how, and how can you argue with that? Yeah. I mean, there is no way to tell someone uh, that, uh, um, you know, if you could argue that to the Occupy Wall Street kids, whom, by the way, I read as uh, the levelers and the digglers, uh, diggers as a Christian millennialist movement that just didn't know it was Christian. Yeah, right. Uh it was this great apocalyptic cry of anger, right? We know what is right and still God allows evil in the world. Uh, but the, uh, if you could explain to them, let's say, I, I don't know the economics of it, but let's say we, we knew the economics and the economics says, you know, the ginning up of new wealth eventually really does raise all boats. Even if you could convince one of these kids about the economics, it wouldn't matter because being against income disparity is being against Satan. Well, and the, and the proof of that is how, how many things they share in common with the Tea Party. And yet yeah. both of those groups hate each other. Right. But they share a kind of uh, pattern of uh, feeling like a beleaguered group who actually get the truth of the universe uh, you know, these are religious terms, uh, and it's wonderful to watch in its way. Now, I have more sympathy for the Tea Party than I did for those poor benighted kids at uh, Occupy Wall Street. 
who really seemed to me just lost sheep, desperately trying to find some way to understand themselves. Uh, but, you know, even so, everybody, it's not just these crazy kids that occupy Wall Street or these nutball members of the edges of the Tea Party. It's everybody. Listen to the way environmentalists talk. Uh, listen to the way the survivalists talk. I have a piece coming up in the Weekly Standard in which I point out the well-worn ground, the usefulness of the idea of the apocalypse. And then I say, what happens if, to take a good example of one of the demons set free by the churches when they collapsed, uh, what happens when the idea of the apocalypse breaks free from the churches, has all Christianity stripped out of it, and is set loose to stalk our public discourse? You get on one side, on the far right, the radical survivalists preparing for the end time, the not, you know, the, just the collapse of America. And you get on the other side, on the far edges of the other side, the radical environmentalists who believe the apocalypse is about to descend upon us. And the apocalypse is a really nice idea morally because it, it wipes away all of our petty concerns. What does anything like, you know, uh, who was mean to me matter when we're talking about the end of the world. More importantly, what does it matter who I'm mean to? Exactly. Or what lies I tell or mm -hmm. anything else. You know, I, uh, I quoted a, a guy from the nation who wrote in the nation magazine uh, who said, you know, it's like he, he's, you know, St. John on the Isle of Patmos, you know, spewing revelation forward. He says, I am involved in a struggle. A struggle, he repeats. A jihad. Right, for the very salvation, or for the very continuance of the world. It's a, it's a heavy load to take on yeah, yourself. It's a heavy load, but, you know, St. John took it on, and, uh, and why not this man? And it's a great example of what I mean by these ideas that used to be corralled and contained in the churches, breaking free to enter our public and social discourse, where they have no limitations upon them. What uh, what future do you see for the Christian faith in the West? Well, we have a promise that the gates of hell will not prevail. Uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not as um, dour as Cardinal George from Chicago, the old Cardinal in Chicago, uh, who said he fully expected to end his life in jail. Uh, but, uh, you know, I actually think we're going to encounter some kind of in fairly short order. It's possible to read. I did read for a long time, you know, for a 10 year period. Uh, America is undergoing the fourth great awakening that never quite happened. And you would see these moments bubble up like the shootings in Colorado that believed in God and then was killed. Uh, you would see trouble up. Actually, I think one of the best-selling things I ever wrote, I wrote for uh, Amazon commissioned it from me for their Kindle single series. Uh, I sold thousands of copies. And it was an essay on Tim Tebow as quarterback of the Denver Broncos. 
Uh, and all of our religious friends bought a copy at 99 cents or whatever they were charging for it. It was a really odd moment, uh, you know, in which Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, is having one of the great seasons of all time. And there's not enough oxygen in the room to mention him because Tim Tebow is sucking it all up. And I think you keep looking back over this period and you see this America trembling on the brink of a fourth great awakening that doesn't quite happen. And then it falls back. Uh, I think at some point it will happen. Uh, you see everybody trying to occupy the space that the mainline churches used to occupy. They're trying to recreate manners and morals in Tocqueville's phrase. This is the feminists screaming about the shirt that the British scientists wore uh, to land or to give the press interviews after he landed uh, the Rosetta uh, probe on that comment. Uh, and, you know, what they're essentially saying is it's bad manners. It's bad manners and bad morals. They just don't know that vocabulary anymore. So they have to scream about he's driving women away from science. Uh, but, you know, this was, this is a kind of Victorian manners and morals thing. Everybody's trying to reclaim that ground. Of course, they want to reclaim that ground for themselves and themselves alone. Uh, but still, you can see a lot of this sort of struggle, not just to win uh, the political debate, but to win the political debate by so much that you reoccupy the vacant center. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw it in, for example, the messianic terms that were employed in 2008 when President Obama won his first election. You kind of feel bad for the guy because how could you possibly live up yeah. to that? <laughs> really interesting. But why why were those terms being deployed? Well, in part because there's this there's this hole there. We don't have anything filling it as we had in say the 1950s, and so everybody wants to occupy for themselves that space. Eventually, something will come of it, I think. This is uh, an argument that Frank Fukuyama has made. And Frank's a smart guy. I don't buy all that he does. I mean, I think the, the end of history thesis that he put got a little knocked around. You know, the corners got dented on that thesis. Uh, but uh, the he, in his book on tr called Trust, he said – you can actually see signs that we're moving toward a new arrangement of manners and morals that we're not able, that we're not actually able to live uh, as a culture with anything going, you know, the kind of openness about sex, for instance. Well, there, eventually there's no more lines to cross. Mm -hmm. Well, there are. Uh, Mary Eberstadt, whom I mentioned earlier, had a very interesting piece a few years ago in which she asked, uh, she said, you know, the, the radical left is facing a dilemma. Which side are they going to come down on? Is their anti-Catholicism going to triumph so that they'll denounce child abuse as a stick with which to be Catholics, Catholic clergy during the scandal? Or are they going to go with the NAMBLA, there's no such thing as child abuse, sexual abuse? And she said, in the end, you know, the Bashkath Catholic thing trumped. Uh, but uh, I think you're seeing some interesting boundaries reemerging. Uh, you know, this guy can't wear a shirt that, you know, with scantily 
clad science fiction babes on it anymore. Uh, you saw that he he gave an apology for it in which he broke down in tears. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, so, you know. Probably just I, space madness, though. <laughs> I know. Who will win and who won't? I have no idea. But, no, Christianity is not going away. I hope you're right. I, 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 uh, I, I don't know. Part, part of me, part of me would like it to reoccupy that center. And part of me wonders if it's better as an underground phenomenon. But then I don't think I would actually want, to, I, I think being an underground phenomenon is probably good for Christianity. I'm not sure I want to live. And I don't, I don't <laughs> think I have the courage to live in that world. That's, that's yeah. the other problem. I mean, you know, part of this is parallel to, you know, uh, an argument that was going around in 2006 and 2008 that uh, Ramesh Panuru mocked, uh, which is, it's better for the Republican Party to lose. We'll end up with a purer, smaller, but purer party. Uh, and Ramesh said, you know what? It's not better to lose. It really isn't. <laughs> it just, no, okay? Can we just say no to that? Uh, but the uh, another way to think of it is... Um, you know, it's in trying not to lose that you actually end up with a balance, even if Christianity is no longer the the dominant force that it was. Because as we've seen, same, say, with same-sex marriage, the demand that same-sex marriage be allowed very quickly morphs into, as it did in Canada, into a demand that those who don't approve be jailed. Yeah, and that's where it starts to get troubling. I'm, I, I mean, I'm not opposed to it as a, as a social phenomenon, but how about we uh, how about we stop <laughs> making people perform it if they don't want to? I mean, yeah. I guess that hasn't really happened yet. But this you thing know, in that, Houston, oh, was quite bizarre. Uh, now you know, I and I think actually that fighting that fight ends up reaching a balance. You know, a preemptive surrender doesn't. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I got whacked around a lot last year. Yeah, I remember that. Or saying, you know, this, 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 the culture has decided to do same-sex marriage. We're not going to stop it. Uh, and there isn't much point in fighting that fight anymore. Uh, and uh, I got whacked, you know, up one side and down the other. Yeah, uh, it, it was hard to find a conservative publication that didn't say bad things about you. Mm. I mean, oh, even, even though what you were doing was much more brave than repeating the conservative party line, you know, but nobody, everybody wants bravery when it's outside their group. Uh, but I was attacked from both sides. I mean, you know, the National Review ran a piece saying that I had trampled on the face of Jesus. Nice. <laughs> nice. And the New Republic ran a piece saying that I had put forward the worst case for same-sex marriage ever. Good Lord. Uh, so, I mean, I was getting it from everybody. In those days, except the New York Times, who kind of liked me. I, yeah, know I was going to say because uh, first, first things or somebody made made a snide reference to the New York Times visiting you at your house, uh, yeah, as if uh, that proved you were wrong. <laughs> but you know, the New York Times alone—it was—and it was both Mark Oppenheimer, their religion reporter, and Ross Douthat. I mean, they did two profiles of me in ten days, uh, and uh, they—you know—those two guys were nice to me. It was the further left and the much further right who were just after me for about three weeks. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's a way in which it seems to me I can, I can say that and still resent and fight against uh, the process by which victory becomes totalitarian. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, that's, that's where we are right now. We're on the cusp of victory becoming totalitarian. And so the place now to, is to stop that. But I think we will stop it. You know, I mean, I think our courts are pretty sensible all in all. I mean, when the Supreme Court affirms the right of Westboro Baptist to picket funerals, it's hard to say that free speech isn't alive. Yeah, no, exactly. But, uh, you know, I think I fear for an America. This is the America I actually fear. I fear for an America that has forgotten its own constitutional founding. Uh, and that doesn't understand that as in a way that I think some of the left, some of the mainstream democratic left, in fact, doesn't understand. Uh, Hillary Clinton denouncing from her position as secretary of state, a movie that got made in this country, uh, as the cause, she was saying it was the cause of the attacks uh, the, in Benghazi. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, she's, you know, I, I think something bad is happening there. <clears throat> I, I'm very worried about the United States plan under President Obama to transfer the Internet registry uh, system to international control. Because we have a system of free speech understood pretty broadly in world terms. And yeah, and Europe Europe has the, the right to be forgotten now. Right, which is madness, you know, just madness. Uh, it, it violates the universe metaphysically. You, know, you, can't, you can't report on what the newspapers actually said on that day. It's at least good intention madness, though. I mean, I, well, I don't disagree with you, right. but I mean, but that's you know, that's that great line of Chesterton in the beginning. I think it's chapter three or four of Orthodoxy. He says the world is full of Christian virtues gone mad, and this is, that's exactly what we're seeing: is this sort of kindness, you know, willingness to to do the right thing, even if it means you know, uh, violating reality. But set loose from the churches to become, you have the right to be forgotten. Uh, it's wonderful in its way. It's exactly what I'm talking about. I, th I think the right way to understand the European Union, for instance, is not, as some of our political theory friends try, to understand it in terms of the return of the idea of universal empire out of uh, Rome and Dante. I think the way to understand it is to read it through Immanuel Kant's perpetual peace and understand it as the triumph, the last great project of pietism. Hmm. Uh, you know, that we're going to eliminate those things that caused war. Uh, you know, which being a Catholic, I think is kind of madness, but, but, but a nice Christian madness, you know, it's just once you lose the Christian foundations for it, these ideas are set free to become wild. Christopher Caldwell, uh, some French thinkers have argued, I think quite persuasively, that you will never get what we call political correctness in any culture that wasn't once Christian. Uh, and I, you know, that's really probably quite right. Political correctness is a kind of, you know, fruit of Christianity. Once you've gotten rid of the Christianity, I'm, I'm trying to think of a I'm trying to think of a way to disprove that, but I don't even know how you could. 
except uh, wait 200 years and see what happens to the Middle East, right? No, I mean, we're reading tea leaves here, but still, you know. That's the fun part. What else is exactly, what else are we to do? It's so much fun. Well, it is getting pretty late here, so I had better let you go. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, I really enjoyed talking to you. Joseph Bottoms' latest book, An Anxious Age, is available on Amazon and presumably wherever else good books are sold. Uh, You can read the show notes, leave comments for this episode at christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Zach Schmidt is our intern. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Thanks for listening.